Throughout history, free thinkers have outraged the religious with their wacky ideas about the virtues of free speech, reason, and of course, eating babies. Now, God is dying, and it's time to dispose of his remains. From the pits of hell, Satan sends two puppets of the imperialist West and the Zionist Jews against God, Islam, and tiny kittens to bring you their propaganda and conspire for a new world order. This is Secular Jihadists for a Muslim Enlightenment with Ali Rizwi and Armin Navabi. Welcome everybody to another episode of Secular Jihadists for a Muslim Enlightenment. My name is uh, Ali Rizvi, and uh, this time again I'm solo with our guest. Um, Armin is away somewhere doing his thing, and uh, he's going to be back again for our, our sort of February roundup, uh, wrap up the Q&A uh, thing. So, you know, we're going to be back together soon. But today uh, I'm doing a solo episode with uh, somebody I've I sort of read and admired for a very long time. Um, uh, Razib, uh, sorry, I mispronounced your name right off the bat. It's okay, Razib man. Khan. <laughs> yeah, Razib Khan is here. Razib Khan is a director of science at the Incitome, um, at Incitome, right? And it's, it, that's like a 23andMe type company. Yeah, right? that, personal genomics company. Personal genomics. And uh, he's a genomics consultant. He's helped in the design of ancestry inference for family tree DNA, National Geographic, and various uh, private clients. Uh, he runs uh, two weblogs, which are blogs, right? I mean, Gene Expression, which, which is a great blog, by the way. I love Gene Expression. And uh, Brown Pundits, and you also have a podcast, uh, the Brown Pundits podcast. Yeah, I have a Brown Pundits podcast. I have the Insight podcast with the Institute. So I'm, mm-hmm. uh, if anybody wants to like find out where I am, Razib.com, I actually point everything to that. Okay, perfect. Um, and uh, you've written for India Today. You've written for National Review. Uh, I've seen that you've also written for the New York Times. There's a bit of a story around that that we'll yeah. we'll talk about as well. Yeah. And um, uh, so so here's how I learned about you. It was many years ago when Andrew Sullivan, Andrew Sullivan, uh, the the blogger, um, he had the Daily Dish, which was really I used to go on that thing four or five times a day. That was my lunch break. I absolutely loved it. It made me so much smarter than I am right now. Uh, and he discontinued it in 2013. So he used to link to you, you know, once in a while, actually fairly often, actually. And um, every time I read it, I was like, yeah, you know, I was like, this is fantastic. I, I loved everything that you wrote. I, I'm also from like a healthcare background. I'm a pathologist. And so I always found it really interesting. Um, so I was, I've been kind of a fan for a little while. So it's actually really good. Like, you know, I, I see you now in the in the live chats whenever we're doing these secular jihadist podcasts. And um, it's crazy for me, like we're actually speaking face to face. So welcome to the podcast and, and thank you for doing this. It's great to be here. I guess I won't I want to be trolling, trolling you today. Yeah, you'll be trolling us. Well, you know, please continue to do that. I really enjoy it, especially when you do it to Armin. I love yeah, it. You, 90% of the time it is to Armin. Yeah, of course it is. Why? Who else would it be? Uh, I, I totally get that. So first, you know, before we get out, I mean, this is a secular jihadist podcast, so I know that you come from a Muslim background. Um, you were born in Dhaka, Bangladesh, and then you moved to the U.S. Uh, when you were, I think, a kid, right? About four or five years old? Yeah, I, right? had so, just, I, I had just turned five, literally like two weeks before I moved to the United States. Right. So are you... Um, so were you ever religious at any time? You were raised in a Muslim religion? Were your parents religious? Mm, I would say, 
I think your term that you like to use is maybe I was Muslimish. Um, <sighs> I think I vaguely had an identification. But um, the story that I like to tell people is um, I was inter interested in evolution from when I was very young. Uh, my father's a scientist. I come from mostly like technical scientific, you know, family. Um, oh, cool. What, what kind of scientist is he? He's a chemist. A chemist. Okay. Yeah. My grandfather was a doctor, like I most, a lot of engineer uncles. Um, so uh, although like, you know, if you go far back, they're mostly ulems and stuff. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Um, but in any case, uh, so... You know, I got a book, it's called, like, The Origin of Humankind. And I was like, oh, it's evolution, blah, 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 the usual, right? I was yeah. eight years old. I opened it up, and it was a creationist book. And I remember picking it up and just chucking it because I was so enraged. And, <laughs> like, I went and complained to my dad, and he was just like, chill out. And I started thinking about it because I realized, wait a second. Wait, I, I think this is supposed to be real, but, I like, I've never believed in this. And yeah. so I realized when I was around eight years old that, like, I actually never... Like, if you had asked me when I was six if I believed in God, I probably would have said yes, but I was the type of person that literally never thought about it. Like, mm -hmm. it, it was never, like, very deep within me as, like, a way to organize. Like, I'm like the anti-Armin. When I listen to Armin, I'm just like, whoa, this guy actually believed that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, I, nev so I never did, you know? Yeah, so you were, it was, uh, uh, I think Belmar calls it the apatheist, like, people who are apathetic towards the idea yeah, of God. Yeah, and, like, it is, there was some apathy, but also it's almost like, when you when you to ask people what they are, they give you kind of a script that they're taught. Mm -hmm. And then if you probe them with like various psychological measures, you can see if they actually believe in this or that. If people had probed me, they would have seen that I was basically an atheist. Like I literally never thought about God uh, unless my parents took me to Eid, you know, at the mosque. Yeah, yeah. It just never was part of my life. My, part not part of my cognition is the way I would say it. Right, and and what's it like with your your parents or your family uh, now? Is it are they still sort of like quasi religious, and, and yeah. do you still do Eid and things like that, or, or no? They've gotten my parents have gotten more religious as they've gotten older, um, so that's a little weird. It's not like super weird. Like they know I'm atheist, um, you know. Of their children, none of them are Muslim. So um, I the only religious child they have is a Buddhist priest. Oh, so you have so a Buddhist I, I'm, priest. I'm, yeah, I'm doing okay. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> and he lives yeah. he lives near my parents, so like my mom is my mom was asking one of my other brothers, um I so she was like, Is uh is your brother is he a Buddha? Like, you know, because she says Buddha, you know? Uh -huh. And my other brother's like, he wears I love Buddha t shirts in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> Because he, he didn't really want to tell them, but he was going to show them by the T-shirts he was wearing. And so, yeah. anyway, like, one of my brothers, um, maybe I shouldn't say this, but, like, you know, I haven't asked him if I can tell people this. But, I mean, he does, like, he runs liturgy at a Buddhist temple. It's, like, it's a yeah. side, side hustle, side job. Um, he has a day job, but it's, like, yeah, his... it's a day job. Side hustle is, the, is a Buddha thing. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's... That's good. I mean, that's um, so, I, mean, I don't well, get it's very twenty first century. Yeah, I don't yeah. get much issue from my parents about my atheism because, like, they have a literal like pagan son. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, what are they gonna do? I mean, you are like, especially with your uh, the the stuff that you do. That I mean, you're you're actually just seeing from the stuff that I've read for you over. I guess it's been almost ever ten been. years or almost like a decade. I've been I've been, been blogging since two thousand two. Okay, yeah, so I've been, and I, I probably came across you, I think, 2011, 2012, something like that. So it's been almost a decade. Yeah. Um, stuff that you do, I mean, it, it wouldn't be surprising that somebody who goes in that direction would be an atheist. Sure. Uh, but, yeah. so how, how did you get into it? How did you get into uh, 
genetics, genomics, mm-hmm. what was happening around? I mean, so the interest in evolution would have to naturally kind of go in that direction anyway. Yeah, right? I, you know, I was interested in evolution first. I've always mm. been one of those kids that's interested in naturalism and evolution. And I come from a family that, you know, like there are some MDs, but really most of the scientific people are more physical science and engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a little weird. I liked animals, you know, I like stuff like that, squishy stuff, um, natural history, nature shows. That was one of my things. Um, you know, but, you know, as I went to college, um, I got the thing that someone like me just looking at me as like a brown American. Okay. Like I major in biochemistry. Yeah. That's, that's what, that's what you do. So I didn't really, um, I double, I, I double majored in biology, but I was like, that's kind of like, uh, can you make a career? Can you make a life out of that? That was just, you know, I, I was still kind of stuck. And I think, you know, my wife would say I'm kind of stuck a little bit in the Asian American mentality, you know, cause like, what am I gonna tell my parents? Like, they don't know what evolutionary genetics is, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I was interested in the topic always, and it was always my favorite, um, favorite subject. And then, you know, year 2000 comes the draft of the human genome. So genomics as a field really didn't exist in the 90s. It, yeah, it didn't. You're it right. Didn't. Yeah. It's, so it's a 21st century thing with computation, with big data. Those are kind of my competencies and my interests. I'm not a guy with like, you know, the pipette doing that. I mean, I've done that. I'm not good at it. Okay, like yeah. anyone who's seen me. So I like to do data analysis. I'm basically a data scientist. I like to look the data, analyze the data, make inferences from the data. And, you know, I also have an interest in history. I am I am a dilettante. Like, I have an interest in a lot of things. And so I've been able to use that um, and, you know, make a career out of, you know, the intersection of genetics and history and genomics and data science and, and insights. Um, on an intellectual level, I am very fascinated with just the whole idea of evolution and what it means, because I don't actually remember a time when I didn't believe in it. Um, mm-hmm. I think I started reading these books. I was so young. There's kind of a background in my um, just my life, just my understanding of the universe. But on the on the micro scale level, I also have an interest in humans and and social science and history and other things. And some of my genetics, you know, interests have also intersected with that. So it's all kind of like come together in these weird syntheses and intersections and um i'm a pretty outgoing person so I, I do know people in like different worlds and different domains and i like to bring those two together too and just see how that works so i actually love the way that you do that i think because you have a you have an interest in history you have an interest in politics and and even you know religion and I, I, and what, what you do when you write is that that stuff gets weaved into uh, a lot of the science but you're sort of very relentlessly uh, factual and, and very sort of, um, I was going to say religiously, you're very loyal to the data. I think that the idea of everything has to be, and this is one of the things that happened with me too when I, when I was growing up and I first learned about evolution. Really, I, I grew up in Saudi Arabia, right? So the, one of the things that they told you is that, you know, if you want evidence of God, look all around you. Just look all around you and you'll see evidence everywhere. So here I am. I'm looking all around me, right, like the Quran says, and uh, there's nature all around me. And the study of nature, as everybody knows, is called science. So that was, I think, that was really interesting because every time I'd I'd read about evolution and I'd look around me, everything would fit, right? So I grew up, I I learned about antibiotic resistance. I'm like, oh, so what's happening? These uh, bacteria are mutating and becoming resistant to the drugs that we're using to kill them. So they're actually evolving to survive, right? They're evolving to survive. That's evolution happening right in front of us. You know, read about paleontology and dinosaurs and, you know, just thoughts of the fossil record, and that adds to it. 
and then, as you said, you know, the, the genetics revolution, the genomic revolution happens. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and well, it was happening for a while, but, um, suddenly it comes across and it, 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 it comes across as a, as one of the most, like, it's so obvious evolution and genomics is, it's just obvious. It's right there. It's not even like proof is when you have to do something to prove the existence of something else, but this is, they go, they're one and the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So wow. you're, the more you're looking around you, there's evidence of all of this stuff and it fits. And then when you think of, well, let God said, let there be light, there was light and, you know, all then he created the world in seven days before there was a sun and there was any such thing as a day and all that, that stuff doesn't fit. It just doesn't compute at all. So, it, it was, um, I think when it comes to belief, I, I, I feel like, you know, it's just a natural progression to, you know, where you end up. You just end up being an atheist or an agnostic, mm-hmm. deist, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah, um, and I, 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 I have heard this story from many people. Um, I have not, I, I did not um, share it just because, as, as I told you, I had a very, like, quick epiphany um, that, oh, I didn't actually believe in this when I was very mm. young. Um, so it was an intuitive leap for me. Um, and so I've actually, over the years, I think I'm I'm where I should be in terms of comprehension. Over the years, I actually worked back to understand how religious people actually believed what they believed. Mm-hmm. So that was actually a process for me because I just yeah. couldn't comprehend it, you know? And so that was something that I started as a teenager and, you know, into my 20s. And I think I, I'm at the level of comprehension that I'm happy with in terms of time allocation and just talking to people, reading the scientific literature, um, understanding how people's psychology works, like nor- normal people, which I don't think I am. Oh, I, I, that, uh, that's exactly what I was going to say. I think once you actually realize why this stuff works, why fake news works, why, you know, uh, people believe so strongly in religion, that's when you realize, oh, okay. I've been looking, and it took me decades to do this. I only realized it, I think, very recently. Um, and that, that's when you realize that, okay, I am different. The way that I process, I've been trying to think, I've been thinking that everybody is going to be persuaded by the same things that I find compelling and I find convincing. But that's not how, it, I mean, you're, I think one of your latest blog posts on gene expression is, is kind of about this, right? You know, when you talked about how uh, people look at history, Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You have people who will say that the founding fathers were white supremacists. You have others mm-hmm. that'll say the founding fathers were radical progressives. Or the founding fathers were fundamental Christians, and and the facts of the matter, they they well, the facts of the matter don't matter. They mm-hmm. they really don't. Yeah. Um, yeah. People will look back and they like it's like the ending of Life of Pi, right? You know the mm-hmm. where it's just. What is the better story? It doesn't matter mm-hmm. what's truthful. What mm-hmm. is a better story that we we like that intrigues us? Yes, uh, that feels yes. better. That's what I. That's what I've seen. Um, I, you know, my attitude towards things like I say, like historical questions, is like I like to like bite into the meat of the facts and just read as much as possible to just kind of like get that feeling of understanding and comprehension. And as I've become older, I've realized most people really don't like reading that. They, much. they don't. They don't. <laughs> And so they're yeah. not gonna they're they're not gonna go there with you because uh, it's a lot of work for them. So you know, I and, and even that. if they do, like confirmation bias is just the name of the game, man. I mean, like they'll they'll read things, and it's really hard to find stuff because you know you you write books with so people who write nonfiction books. You know, you're reading uh, uh, 
they're not reference books. I mean, you're reading the opinion of one person and one person's worldview. So you'll read, you know, uh, is it is it Paul Bloom who wrote the case against empathy? You're going to read that and you'll be like, oh, just empathy is just yeah. bullshit. This is yeah. nothing. And then you'll read somebody, you'll read Simon Baron Cohen. You're going to think, okay, well, you know, this is a completely different angle. Uh, most people don't do that. They they tend to look at things and, and they find things that mm-hmm. sort of fit their worldview mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah. And the question is, where does that worldview come from? Yeah. You know, what it is. And it's uh, so the way that people process information, I think, is really fascinating. And I, I actually share that with you a lot. I mean, you've heard on the podcast, I talk a lot yep. about storytelling and the use of art in, mm-hmm. in sort of religion, the, the way the demagoguery. Yeah, exactly. Aesthetics appeal to a lot of people. Um, and I didn't, I don't have much of an aesthetic sense. I like working <laughs> yeah. on the command line. <laughs> Yeah. You know, like if you put a, a graphical user interface in front of me, I get stressed out because I'm like, oh, I gotta like use geometry yeah. and move things around instead of just like typing commands. So I have a particular type of um, brain, and I think it's not very aesthetically oriented, mm-hmm. and so that's made it somewhat difficult for me. I think to understand what really moves people because I'm not very moved by things. Yeah. So I'm yeah. So I'm a little bit different from you in that way. Like I do have a like I I play music and. Um, you you're know, creative. So the, you're creative. Yeah, I like. Yeah, I like. I like doing a lot of creative things, and I, and I understand that. I understand the power of it. So, I understand how powerful music can be. And when you look at, uh, you know, I, I, one of the things I find most interesting is just music because it's just sort of a little bit outside the rational grasp. I mean, this is a multi-billion-dollar business that everybody's obsessed with. And it's just a range of frequencies arranged in a certain way where their wavelengths, you know, uh, they're sort of multiples of each other and they harmonize in certain ways and somehow we hear that and it can make you feel happy it can make you feel sad it can make you feel anything and it's just a phenomenal experience to me and I, i've always been interested in figuring it out you know kids when they learn music they learn a sense of rhythm rhythm is mathematical uh it improves verbal skills because you know you, you read a chapter in a book and you retain very little of it but that song comes on from high school you know, it's a it's a rap song for that's like three pages long, and you remember all of the words. Yeah, you, you remember, remember memories them. associated with it too. It has it's there's encoded somewhere in the brain that's very different than prose. Yeah, so so I do like sort of breaking it down, and it just it, it fascinates me more. Uh, but I am interested in. I I feel like one of the reasons we don't learn the lessons of history sometimes is uh, because we're very uncomfortable. Um. We're very uncomfortable breaking down just dispassionately the mm-hmm. mechanisms that yeah. have made, say, someone like Hitler successful. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I watched this documentary, Hitler, A Career. It was based on a book called Hitler, A Career, which is a very dispassionate look at Hitler. It didn't really talk about all the horrible things he did because, you know, we know all about that. But really broke down what he did politically, how he used to craft his speeches, what kinds of messages he used to prioritize in the way that he used to talk you know how he dealt with people in his own party in other parties and to me i I was looking at that i was like there's so many parallels between that and so much of what we're seeing now with the rise of the sort of the the far right um in in europe and and around the world really and because people mm-hmm. don't know, they're very uncomfortable looking sure. at that side of things dispassionately. Mm-hmm. They completely miss it when it happens again. And it happens mm-hmm. again and again and again. Yeah. And 
And the same thing goes with these prophets of these all these religions. I mean, they, they were all demagogues as well. They just knew they had an intuitive sense of what um, they had talent. They had a talent. One thing that I'd say is, um, you know, back in the two thousands, um, during the war on terror period, um, I would get pushback from people, like just criticism, because I like to um, look at Islam in a dispassionate way, even though my own personal op- opinions are not very positive. Yeah, and people would be like, "Are you actually really a Muslim?" And I'm like, "No, I'm not a Muslim." <laughs> but I mean, it, it, I don't get anything out of getting all emotionally wrapped up in something. Like, if you need to understand yeah, something, you need to put that to aside. And I think, I mean, the Greek term is like epoche, like you know, where you just like you take your own feelings, you put the feelings to aside, and then just analyze as if you don't have feelings, right? So that's yeah, important. Yeah. Any given question, any given topic. Some topics it comes very easily. Like if you're a civil engineer and you're designing a bridge, you're not emotionally invested. But you know, um, if you're a doctor, you could be emotionally invested in the patient. But yeah, you yeah. you still need to do your professional job in analysis. You know. Yeah, that, and that's the thing. It's about topics. Like if we talk about say, if we talk about quantum physics, for instance. You know, people are like, ah, like, ah, I think quantum physics is bullshit. And then the other person will be like, oh, okay, well, that's your opinion. All right, okay, bye. Uh, and it wouldn't really be an emotionally something that would rile somebody up emotionally. But you go to somebody and you say, eh, I, I, I believe in creationism, right? I don't believe in evolution. And suddenly it becomes a very emotional issue. That's something yeah. people get passionate about, Fraud. which yep. just goes to show that it's not like, you know, facts are, uh, they're loaded. They're, they're loaded with all of this. Facts lead to feelings. Facts lead to feelings. They lead to feelings. They can. Yeah. And the certain facts. So, so let's get down to, um, so I, I want to kind of talk about some of the geek stuff with you. Uh, so you sequenced your son's, my older, your son, oldest, yeah. well, actually your older, oldest, but the older one was the one in the media, the one in the media that you, you sequenced his genome while um, uh, he was still in utero. Yeah, second trimester. Yeah, before he was four born. Months. Four months. Right, and you do it. You did it with the chorionic villa sampling. Yes, we took chorionic villa sampling. So we got the tissue. Took the tissue, mixed it up with some mushroom tissue. It's been many years, so I can talk about what happened without yeah, getting yeah. my professor into it. Let, let me just, for the audience, yeah. uh, who, chorionic villus sampling is basically there's a part of the placenta that you can actually uh, take a, a sort of biopsy of, and then you can analyze uh, uh, your, your unborn child's uh, genetic material using it. Yeah. But, uh, and so what we did is, um, okay, so basically um, got them to do that, call the lab, kind of threatened them to get the tissue back. We got the tissue back with the amplified DNA, sent the amplified DNA to a sequencing facility, and he was sequenced on a lane with a mushroom. But it wasn't a big issue because like mushroom genomes are totally different than human genomes because people are always like, oh, how do you know that you didn't get mushrooms? And I'm like, I didn't get mushroom <laughs> sequence, okay? <laughs> anyway, it's like a computationally like trivial task. So, um, and then so his sequences come out, I assembled them. Um, the first thing that I did is I ran a principal component analysis to see what the ancestry of this individual was, and the individual was placed exactly between a South Asian cluster and a European cluster with some shift to East Asians. So it was where he should be. Yeah, that's where he should be. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 so the East Asian thing we all have, is, is that Genghis Khan? No, 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 that's Bengalis. Okay, I'm, I'm just... It's not, uh, it's not, yeah. it's not all. It's, uh, Bengalis have, uh, yeah. they have admixture that happened about 1,500 years ago from some... Uh, Burman-like group or Tibetan-like, Tibeto-Burman-like group. There's no understanding of what happened there, um, mm. but something happened. There's, I mean, I've actually looked really, I've tried to look in the literature, but like there's no historical record of what happened. Yeah. But something happened. It's a lot. 
It's 15% of my ancestry is East Asian. Yeah. So, yeah, I actually, I, I didn't know that. But the Genghis Khan thing, I was, was a little yes. tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, yeah. Just kinda, but the but, Genghis Khan is a Y-chromosome haplogroup. Yeah, it is. So, I... Um, yeah, so so you had that, and you, and you, so you had a sequel. It was in the media a lot. Yeah, and so what, yeah, yeah. What happened was, um, I thought this was the, around when? When was this? Twenty fourteen. Twenty fourteen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so I thought it would be available already by then, and I started asking around, like asking um, researchers that were at the cutting edge of fetal sequencing, and they were like, "Oh yeah, it's not like consumer yet. It's not available." And I was complaining to friends, and they're just like, "Why don't you just do something about it? Like, you have the skills to analyze it." And 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 I was like, "Okay." And so, you know, over a couple of months, I figured out who to talk to, and by hook and by you know, hook, uh-huh. I just I kind of like bullied people into giving me the samples, and then I figured out a way to you know get it sequenced, which is not something most people could have done, especially then. And then once the data, the gigabytes of data came back, well, I mean, I just analyzed it. Like uh, that data is still in a folder on my computer. Um, yeah. I have, I have like, you know, I have like gigabytes of his data there still. So, you know, that's there forever in the future. It'll be in the cloud somewhere. Um, yeah. and so I got that, looked at the phenotypic characteristics, you know, the traits, um, you know, Y chromosome is right. It's my kid, you know? So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, all the basics, like nothing, <laughs> nothing super intense, but it was basically like a proof of principle, like, oh, this can be done. Yeah. Which you, is like, you basically just admit that you basically did the whole thing because you wanted to establish paternity. <laughs> well, went through this whole ordeal it's like okay well you know now i know yeah. okay so you might uh, maybe i shouldn't say this but um <laughs> oh uh, no you totally have no, to say no. it now uh, so <laughs> let's just say the, the um physical characteristics of my son do not look very south asian um well actually yeah. none of my kids but and so people will often like and when he was when he was a little kid he was blonde and uh-huh. so uh people would be like you sure that's your kid and i was like Oh, he was sequenced before he was born. They'd be like, whoa. Because <laughs> it was kind of like, you know, they were making a joke. And then I'm like, oh, I sequenced him in utero. And they're just like, oh, okay. That's... Okay, I believe you. <laughs> you, you know, so what's funny is like my, uh, I have a daughter. She's three now. And uh, my um, wife and I, when, when my wife was pregnant, we did the whole 23andMe thing. And then we did the match. And we looked at all the traits and stuff. We, we totally geeked out. We got a fetal DNA test. So we found out like really that just within a matter of weeks, whether it was going to be a girl or a boy. And so, you know, we, um, so we, we had a lot of fun with it, but when we did our, our 23 and me and we did the matchup, I realized a lot of things that otherwise, if I hadn't known would have really surprised me when she was born. Uh, so, you know, my wife and I both have, okay. we both look very South Asian. We have like mm-hmm. generally dark olive dark skin and you know brown eyes dark brown eyes and my daughter doesn't but mm. she has lighter colored eyes and and when, when she was when she was born you know i if i hadn't done that before you would just be like um I, yeah I, I knew there was a 44 percent chance that she'd have like lighter colored eyes but yeah i would have just been i was like what is this what am yeah, I doing yeah. Here? so yeah that's the great thing about it, the, the, the time we live in you can actually look at the data and uh-huh. explain why this is happening because people routinely exactly. ask me anomalies and I'm like, well, do you have the data? And I'll look at it. And I'm like, oh, it's because of this gene. Yeah. And so, you know, when the way genetics happens is um, it's a sampling process and there's noise within it. And so things segregate out in ways that aren't just like deterministic straight line extrapolations. Like they'll go this way, they'll go that way, you know? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. like in any given family, you see a range of outcomes in children. And sometimes, you know, you see children that don't look 
like the parents on a characteristic, and that's that's actually part of the way genetics is designed for evolutionary purposes. Right. Yeah. So, um, so you did this, and one of the conversations, one of the things that uh, came out at that point was, and uh, it was probably, I think this is in your Wikipedia. Actually, there was a there was a quote that you had where, and I, I I'm talking about this because recently Richard Dawkins got into trouble again after a very mm. long time. Sure. Because uh, he talked about how eugenics is just because it's a shitty thing to do doesn't mean it doesn't work. I mean, that was the mm-hmm. whole point that he was making. That, you know, it doesn't mean we should do it, but this whole idea of denying that it's actually a thing and it doesn't work um, is, is a totally different conversation. But then, you know, I was thinking, you know, you mentioned chorionic villus sampling, amniocentesis, fetal DNA screening to see, you know, if your kid has Down syndrome, if there's any chromosomal anomaly. And, you know, in that case, you know, you would um, abort the child, right? I mean, so uh, isn't eugenics, don't we all do eugenics at a mass scale anyway? Isn't that eugenics? Mm. I mean, that that's my argument. There's technical ways you can define eugenics where uh, trisomies, like Down syndrome, uh, termination doesn't count because eugenics means the change in allele frequencies over time and the fertility of individuals with Down syndrome is very low. So mm-hmm. there's a technical way to say, well, that's not eugenics. But I think by any normal definition... So, just colloqu- so, I, sorry, I got to translate that for the audience. Yeah. So, so what you're saying is that with Down syndrome, like people with Down syndrome, they don't really reproduce very often. So, no. you know, you're in a way that, yeah, so, so you can make yeah. the counter argument. So you can make that, the yeah. counter argument that that's not eugenics. But I mean, in my opinion, colloquially, that is. Um, mm. And whenever people bring it up, um, eugenics, like academics love to talk about well, that's eugenics. Like, eugenics could happen if we do polygenic risk scores. And I'm like, you do know that, like, there's most academics I know, like, they have children at an older age. They get these, like, prenatal, you know, like, um, non-invasive screens. Uh, I mean, people don't talk about it, but, I mean, they're second second trimester terminations, second trimester abortions, right? So, I mean, what, what are you doing here? Like, what is this? Like, Denmark is quite proud that no children with Down syndrome were born last year. How did mm-hmm. that happen? You know, or Iceland. <laughs> so, I mean, they're pro-life conservative people that always bring this up, but um, there's kind of a blind neglect and kind of a turning away from this fact, in my opinion, by professional upper middle class liberals, because this is what they do. And what they do is not eugenics. That's yeah. what people in the future are going to do, unless right. they also do it in the future, and then it's not eugenics. <laughs> so, the, so I have like a sociological explanation where basically they're not going to define it as eugenics if they do it. No, but, but you know, the, the thing is, uh, yeah, they're not going to define it as eugenics if they do it, but they're all going to do it. It's going to happen. I mean, once we have the capability, uh, you, you know, I have, um, if you have a child, like, so so for the audience, there's, there's this disease called Huntington's Korea, right? Uh, Huntington's Korea, uh, Korea, that's C-H-O-R-E-A. That's where the word choreography comes from. It's, it, it's the, it means dance. So these people have these uncontrollable jerky movements. And it's inherited in an autosomal dominant pattern, which means that by the time you're the age of 40, even if one of your parents has it, you are going to get it. You can't get away from it. You're going to get it. Right? So you can actually look at your genes and your genome. It'll tell you if you have that. And if you have it, you know that you're going to get this disease at the age of 40. Now, when people do that, it's a devastating thing you know, when they realize that they're going to get it around the age of 40. Now, why would you not? Why would you, if you could check your 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 fetus, or you could check even before you reproduce, and you could, if you could check to see whether there's a chance of that happening, why would you not weed it out right there and then? 
there's so much being done for treatments for these kinds of diseases, like kids who have predispositions to cancers, uh, the BRCA1, BRCA2 mutations for for breast cancer that, you know, in some cases will almost certainly um, guarantee that you're going to get breast cancer. That's what Angelina Jolie had both of her breasts removed uh, because that's the reason, because she's positive for that mutation. I mean, we're we're doing all these things. I mean, you could you could if you could screen for this for your kids, you're going to do it. They're going to do it, and all these sort of upper upper class, middle class liberals are going to do it. Everybody's going to do it, and that is eugenics. They're they're going yeah. to do it. It's it's not always about the thing is it's it's a loaded word because there's the idea of having a pure race, um, and you know. You, but I mean, is that that's actually like historically though that was like somewhat orthogonal. That was kind of a perpendicular concern. Like they right. were both the the the, the racialism ra- racial purity concern emerged at the same time, but eugenics technically is just an application of animal breeding or plant mm. breeding, as Dawkins yeah, it is. Yeah. as Dawkins implied. So so eugenics, I mean, like R. A. Fisher, one of the um you know, or, or in you know pioneers in evolutionary genetics, like he talked about how like crossing between different lineages might actually increase fitness because of blah blah. There's technical reasons. But um, mm-hmm. my only point is they emerge at the same time historically, so we associate with them, but they're actually not that hard to decouple. And there were some weird movements. A Finnish friend was telling me, you know, in the early 20th century, other Europeans would say like Finns are mongrels and Finns, Finns created this own ideology where they're like, yes, we are and we're superior to you because we're mm-hmm. hybrid hybrid like superior groups of like we're asiatic and european and you know so they use they they use this like race mixing as like a supremacist ideology so yeah. it's it, 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 there's a it's like a religion it's like religion there's lots of little sects and ways it can go and you know they, they can yeah and i i want to, i i want to eventually i actually do want to talk to you at some point about my paternal haplo group uh, which is uh, it's always been a, an interesting story because it's relatively rare, but we'll get to that later. But I, I, this thing about eugenics and the people who are trying to breed pure races and the whole Hitler thing, and I, they get caught up. If you do evolutionary biology, if you do population genetics, if you do anything like that, you're if at some point going to find yourself mired in some sort of controversy, mm-hmm. or you're going to have somebody who's going to try to use your skills sure. to advance um, whatever agenda they have, and often it can it can get you unknowingly. So and and so and, and I, I don't know what your view of this was, but there is an association that you had. You once worked with Richard Spencer. Is that clear? Like the well, white supremacist. Editor, he was my editor at Talkies Mag. Yeah. So at at Taki, so you were so the, so. Let's just start from the beginning because nobody, I, I don't think uh, the audience is going to know what Taki's Mag is. So you wrote for a publication called Taki's Mag. Yeah, yeah. Right? So it's still around. So it's by like this uh, kind of like Greek. I think he's a billionaire, but he does publishing as like uh, as like um, a side thing. He co-founded the American Conservative. So what happened is like two thousand eight. I think two thousand eight. Uh, Richard, you know, who was a nobody then, uh, reaches out and he's like, "Hey, do you want to write some like." evolution-related stuff. And Talkies Mag was a bit on the edgy side. I'd say, like, definitely paleoconservative, you know, which, like, I, I have some paleoconservative uh, sympathies anyway. So, so. What, what is that? Can you explain paleoconservative? Uh, basically, during the 2000s, um, neoconservative became big, like, you know, you know, interventionism. And paleoconservatives were basically like, we're against that. We're more yeah. isolationist, right? And so an old right, kind of like, you know, like a lot of anti-immigration restriction people were paleoconservatives, but basically like not neoconservatives, not D- DC mainstream people. So, um, yeah, and so he was an editor there until I think like 2009. Um, mm-hmm. And then he went and started doing his own things. 
And um, honestly, I wasn't like keeping track of him because he wasn't a famous person back then. And then he started resurfacing in the middle to- middle teens, and uh, he had evolved. <laughs> Let's just yeah. say that. Um, so I mean, this, <laughs> this is in the, this is in yeah. the record. This is in the record. Um, so I'm not like uh, giving away confidences. But I knew um, the way I actually met Richard and was connected with him was through his ex girlfriend, who is Chinese American. So yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, he was not he was not a white nationalist then. <laughs> He wasn't a white. Yeah. So that's interesting to me. But the thing is that people do use this against you. So at that time, you obviously had no idea what this guy was going to be like, you know, six, yeah, seven but years I mean, from now. Richard, Richard's influence echoes back into history, into his own past. Yeah. I mean, people what use it because they can. Yeah, yeah, they, they, yeah, they can. So like that, so that's, that's a, the thing. That's why they do it. Any past association that you have with them, they're going to Yes, that, they do it to get everybody. you on. He worked, at the, yeah. he worked at the American Conservative. He interacted in D.C. There are pictures of him with a lot of people. Right, right, right. And well, it, I mean, we had we had Graham Wood on yeah, the show. Well, I mean, he went to high school. And, uh, but I'm just saying, like, yeah, yeah, but Richard was schmoozing with a lot of Cato people in 2008 at parties. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, oh, okay. he was just like a normal D.C. person back then. So, but the thing is, so this Taki Mag thing, is it controversial? Because it seems like... Now, from what I know, that you did get a uh, a job at the New York Times. They wanted you to write for them, and you did actually write a couple of pieces. Yeah, I, them, well, right? you know, I was doing a trial, and I was in grad school at the time, and they were like, "Hey, do you want to write for us?" And I was like, "Sure." And my um my op eds, like, I turned it around. I mean, I'm a pre- pretty quick writer. Um, I turned it around really quickly, and um they one of them like that the cat evolution one was like the most emailed for like two days. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I got yeah. screenshots of that. But uh, um, <laughs> so they were like, "Hey, do you want to write?" And I actually asked them, "Like, have you checked me out? Because I'm pretty edgy." And they're like, "Oh, it's fine. We, we did, you know." And then all that broke loose. And like, this is the, my philosophy on it. Like, no. So wait, yeah. but so what broke loose exactly before you go? Oh, into just like, philosophy? oh, I'd written for Takis. I wrote a letter to V Dare in the year 2000 when I was in college. To who? To V Dare. Which so, is like, which it's 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 like an anti-immigration, and now it's like version to white nationalism. When I was in college, I, I I was like reading webzines. I took issue with something in a webzine called VDare. I wrote a letter to the editor. It's oh, still that's there it. On the internet. Well, I mean, that's enough. Yeah, that's People enough. People want yeah. a job at the New York Times. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is like that fell that fell into my lap. I didn't even look for mm-hmm. um right. and so I, I i understand why rationally people would be like pissed that yeah. i had that opportunity that platform right 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 so of course they were going to do that so people are upset so here's the so here's the context so you you identify as a conservative right and then yeah, i mean i am i mean it's yeah know. Oh, I'm sorry. Identify as it. That's yeah, that's the way to. Talk. That's the way they. That's how the kids talk I, nowadays. No, no, no. But I identify what, as a that, human. That's what my. That's what my academic friends always all, all say. They say you identify as your conservative. As as, as conservative. Yeah, I know. So like, okay. Yeah. I mean, oh, come on, get woke, Razib. Seriously, <laughs> like we identify everything yeah. is about identifying. So yeah, so you're a conservative, and uh, you're writing for you know you got this appointment from the New York Times. They find out that you wrote for this uh, Taki Mag thing. Um, that also had like Richard Spencer as the editor, and it was like somewhat, you know. Uh, and they had a well, an issue Richard with Spencer it. Spencer didn't come up back then because he wasn't actually that famous in 2015. Oh, so this was in 2015. Okay, so so then what happens is 
that they tell you, okay, we're not going to keep you on as a regular contributor, but you can write one-off op-ed pieces yeah, later and on? I, yeah, and I didn't really follow up too much. I mean, I was in touch. I'm still friendly with some of those editors. I mean, it's just like they were going to – we didn't understand the world mm-hmm. that, that people were in then. They were thinking about – I mean, I think I can say this now because the people are gone that were editors. And um, they, were, they were thinking about like, well, maybe we'll just like kind of ignore this. But um, I don't think that they would ever ignore this today. I mean, multiple people have also gotten hired and fired now, too. Um, this is just a thing that happens. And so in, yeah. in, in media, it's very, very hard to get these platforms uh, to get these jobs. And so only the in-group can get the job. So people always ask me, like, how did Sarah Zhang, like, keep her job despite saying racist things about white people one they're white people you can say whatever you want about white you people can, yeah, dude. yeah but yeah. that's but like let's just like you know take it as a given that she did say racist like harsh things well, of I mean, she, she went did. to harvard yeah. she went to harvard she knows the right people she lives in new york city she's part of that tribe like so yeah. ezra klein will write articles about this is just how we talk on the internet mm-hmm. because ezra klein and sarah Zhang are of the same tribe i'm sure they know each other personally I mean, yeah, not like yeah. they might not be close, but I'm sure they're one degree separated at max, right? So mm-hmm. like, it, this is how the media world works. It's not a high-paying job, um, and but it's influential. You get paid in influence. Like you can destroy people as a reporter, mm-hmm. despite the fact that you can barely make your rent in New York City, right? Yeah. So yeah. Um, it's just it's a weird world, and I'm not like super into it. I still do the blog, and I do other things, and I write periodically. Um, because like who else is going to do it? Like I'm at an age where I have a family and I have a job and I have other things going on, but who else is going to do this right now? Yeah. I, I don't know. There's sure. no other, I mean, like tell me who the other Razib Khan is and I'll just like fade out. Like I thought I would, because I just thought it was something I would do temporarily. No, but th- that's the thing. You're hard to, uh, there's, uh, there aren't a lot of people who are doing what you're doing. Right. I mean, part of yeah. it is just like most people are like, I'm not going to say anything vulgar, but most people like lack courage. So um, they're not going to, like, say things. I will just say it. Like, what are you going to do to me? Fire me from the New York Times? <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, like, this is, but people want to keep their signatures. They want to keep their perches, and so they won't say certain things. Um, like, uh, some of the people, like, I was telling my wife, like, some of the people that sign up for my newsletter, you would be surprised who's signing up. But, you know. Um, oh, interesting. No, yeah. But, so it's so just this, this question that do you often get – because of the kind of work you do and the kind of things that you talk about, you're again you 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 speak about the facts, right? Um, do do you get a lot of the Richard Spencer type people like who want to give themselves legitimacy? Because you know there's there's a couple of things here. First of all, you are you know you're you're brilliant at what you do, right? You're a genomics guy, you're a population genetics guy, you know, all the stuff. That these are things, and then on top of that, you're a brown guy. From Muslim background, right? Yeah, so they're like, weird. "Hey, look, I, I mean, so isn't there an opportunity for a lot of these <laughs> people to go? Hey, look, I got this poster. Where there's a brown guy, the Muslim background. He's coming. He's saying all the shit that you know. I'm, he's backing it all up with facts, and this is what I'm. Well, actually, so yeah, yeah. so people can they can explore well, you, can't they? Yeah, they right? can. But but that's that's how it always is. Um, I can only speak for myself. I'm very clear. This is what my friends always like say. They're always like, Razib, you're always very clear. What people do with what you say can be quite different, right? Right. But I mean, the facts are there. The I, you know, data analysis is there. Um, just because. So sometimes I will tweet something out that's edgy. Um, I don't tweet that much anymore for various reasons. Everyone knows what Twitter's like. But um, yeah. anyways, I'll I'll tweet something out and it'll like go viral somehow and someone will tweet at me, I wonder how you feel that this 
objectionable person you've never heard about liked your tweet. Mm. And I'm like, who is even thinking in this way? No, no, those are I, people. I don't really care. So it's like, you know, and I was talking to like, um, so I'm going to name drop, uh, Skip Gates. Um, uh-huh. uh, is, you know, we're friendly. Um, I consult for a show. Um, I hope like I'm not going to get fired because like I mentioned this, but anyway. So, okay, can you explain who that is? I, 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 uh, I, I Henry Louis Gates Jr. He had the Beer Summit. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so he runs a show about genetic genealogy. You know. Um, and, so okay, so let me let me explain this just for the people who don't know. Um, uh, Henry Louis Gates was the uh, and correct me if I'm wrong. He was a professor that during Obama's time uh, there was a cop that went into his house and arrested him for being in his own house. Yeah, yeah uh, so basically. It was a, and was, so Obama called both of them uh, to have a beer with him so he yeah. could talk about race issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so, I mean, he's a, like, a black kind of professor. Like a, yeah, he's a doyen of African-American studies and stuff like that. So, I mean, he's a big deal. But, you know, I was like, I asked him. I did a 10 questions on my blog with him, actually. But um, I asked him, I was like, you know, we both, like, read classics of people that, I mean, to be frank, would think we're inferior. But that's... Mm-hmm. Whatever, like, you know, that's just how it is. Like, you can't, I'm not going to, like, ideologically police Immanuel Kant, you know? I mean, look at what he wrote about people that look like us. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Voltaire also said quite racist things, actually. No, Voltaire was, like, a notorious anti-Semite, too. So, I mean, this sort of, of, like, policing, like, it basically, it's very Salafi, you know, where it's like... There's yeah. only it's a very Salafi or like or a Calvinist mind, you know, like certain types of Puritans. Like there's the banned books list. So it's coming back on the left. Like I mean, the re- one reason I identify as a conservative is I like to think for myself. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot less policing on the right. On the left, there's a lot more a po- lot more policing today. May- I don't know, maybe because the left is culturally powerful and power corrupts. I don't know, but um, so I think when people say like, oh, people are using you for this and using you for that. I mean, the facts are the facts. Um, how people are going to use it, like, do you disagree with the facts or do you disagree with the interpretation of the facts? Mm-hmm. Right? So, I mean, that's that's basically um, where I stand. So people like to say, for example, I, mean, we, I think we're both on the same page on this, so but maybe not. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like, people, people say, like, a lot of geneticists say race is not biologically real. My objection to that term or the, you, the, that phrase is that People who are not geneticists take the wrong conclusion from it. And so if you say something and they consistently take the wrong conclusion, you need to say it differently or mm-hmm. explain what you mean, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you know, it, it's like population structure is real. It's not arbitrary. It's trivial to um, classify and analyze. But these are, yeah, yeah. These are conclusions I, that people get confused by when you say it's not biologically real. Yeah, it's um, – yeah, but you know what? I think that people should explain instead of getting upset. They're like, well, you know, you just don't understand or, or whatever. They, they need to. They, that's that's the right thing. Like they they really do need to explain things better. And I, I don't know who it was that said it or maybe it's just one of these anonymous things. But um, the idea that if you can't oh, I think it may have been Richard Feynman that if you can't explain what your knowledge in simple terms to somebody so they can understand it right then you have to question what you know you should yeah. be able to explain it and yeah. and and this is this is the thing and i, I, I like biological races i mean people say it's real i just tell them to go just go to wikipedia and look up ecotype you see that like you know people who are species it happens in all the species you know you you when you migrate to you know different parts of the world um then that region that that regional geog that has an effect on you and on how you evolve and and that's how members of the same species 
uh, can have different uh, characteristics. And, and and this is uh, like being well, being a physician does other things, especially pathologists. Like I, I know that we have different reference ranges when we're looking at kidney function tests uh, for blacks and whites. Like when you're looking at glomerular uh, filtration rate, the e- eGFR, it's it's different. There's a different range for for a black person, different range for a white person, uh, reference ranges. So, and there, that's just one example. Like there are many different things, and that does not mean that one is better, one is worse, one is superior, one is inferior. Um, it doesn't mean any of that. All it means is that there are differences, and this is actually mm. a biological reality. A lot of things are biological realities. I mean. Mm. Think about like with sexuality and reproduction and how they're sort of inextricably linked in in males, where every time you ejaculate, you're going to have an orgasm. Uh, but with uh, with females, I don't know if I'm supposed to say females or women or you know, just, I don't, don't even don't go know. there. Don't even go there. Yeah, general, yeah, no, I'm not going to go on there. But generally, with karyotypic females with larger size gametes, okay. Let's go with that. There you go. The gametes. Yeah, <laughs> that's the one thing. You, um, you know, you can have sexuality in terms of orgasms. You can have like seven in a session, but you're only going to have that one egg every month, right? So it's, and that has to have an effect. If I don't give my kid a hug, and then years later that affects the relationship, that can have such a massive impact. How could something this huge, you know, how could just the basics of reproductive endocrinology not have an effect on our behavior and the way mm-hmm. that we pursue uh, life, relationships, mm-hmm. sexuality, whatever it is. So it's there is there is a denial of uh, reality, and, and that's why I think one of your articles and another one of your articles I'll talk about. I think so. This one was in the National Review, um, where you talked about how uh, you talked about evolution deniers, how people on the left who are denying these things are actually. In, in a way, ev- that's a new kind of evolution denial. Sure. sure. And um, how conservatives, and you made the argument that conservatives should actually embrace evolution mm-hmm. because it's an, it's an acknowledgement of the truth. It actually gives, um, and you know, I identify, I identify as a, <laughs> a left liberal, right? So I, I, don't, I don't think of myself as a conservative at all. But on this, I think uh, I'm, I'm completely aligned with you that this is actually a rejoinder to uh, the, the sort of super leftists who say that, you know, whatever's natural, karyotypes, reproductive endocrinology, all of these things, they just don't exist. They're not real. Mm-hmm. Everything is mm-hmm. a social construct. Yeah. Right? So when you embrace evolution, and I, th- I and again, correct me if I'm wrong or misrepresenting you in any way, but if you embrace evolution, that is a rejoinder sure. to that kind of sort of political, mm-hmm. um, just washing everything politically, all of the, of the reality, the scientific yeah. reality uh, with politics. Yeah. So let me um, let me go really quickly into the backstory of like how that happened. So, um, you know, since I am literally the only Republican out Republican biologist, there are others, but I, like if you Google Republican biologist or people know, I mean, like conservatives know that I am of their tribe, kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, I mean, it's it's a fact that most scientists, they hate conservatives, they hate Republicans. And Republicans also, they, they know this. And so they're very wary. They're not wary with me because they know that I'm not going to denounce them because I'm, you know. And so I do get yeah. contacts from them. I, I got to say, you're, you're the only, you're one of the very few Republican scientists that I really like. And I, I so that's a huge compliment to you, even though I don't know if you're, that's going to be offensive yeah. because. Uh, I mean, your feelings are your feelings. I'm not offended by your feelings, bro. 
Ah, feelings. You're telling me those are my feelings, huh? Yeah, that's how you feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, so <laughs> what happened was there was an article in the Federalist that was kind of anti-evolution, and um, you know, I have a lot of contacts in right-wing think tank world and sort of think tanks, and very few people are creationists or against evolution, but people just kind of keep it on on the down low because they don't want to offend the evangelical allies, whatever. And I was just like, okay, like this is, you know, I'm gonna. Um, part of it was I was actually inspired by um, extremely offline a podcast that I'm also a patron of uh, by uh, Zay Jelani and um, Leighton Woodhouse, and they bring together people with opposite views, and I, I really like what they're trying to do. So I was like, you know, I'm gonna try to like submit to the Federalist um, uh, a piece that supports evolution. Um, to make a long story short, like I tried for three weeks, it just wasn't gonna happen. They I'm going to like say a low, lower level editor basically was going to spike it no matter what. I know this now in hindsight. Ben Dominich, I'm friendly with. Like he wouldn't have had a problem with it. But anyway, so there's some politics that happened there. So I was like, that's okay. why you're the only Republican scientist. I like this is a federalist and you can. I, I'm just going to make my points yeah. here too. I'm yeah. going to make my feelings. Yeah. As well, so. Go ahead. No, but uh, so I was like, okay, I have this piece. So I know people at National Review. I just email them. And um, I'm going to have another piece of National Review and like the print edition, by the way, at the end of March um, on personal genomics. But anyway, um, cool. so I was like, oh, can I um, can I just like submit this to you guys? And they were like, oh, yeah. And so I put that out there. And uh, the, 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 the the intent of the piece was to show to conservatives and to show to the world. Actually, there's a lot of us that accept evolution. It's just, we don't really talk about it too much because, oh, we don't want to like offend our allies. A little bit of political correctness on the right, you know? Right, yeah. And there was a there was yeah. a, a, a new um a new anti-evolution book that came out william dembski and and um i think uh the darwin's black box behe and the other guy anyway um they were i do not believe it was a good book obviously because it's against evolution it's just it didn't make any sense um i saw a positive review i think i can say this um this wasn't anyone who's an editor at national review now they actually showed me the positive review they were like should we publish this and I said no, and this is why. And I gave them long annotations, and so they didn't. Um, mm -hmm. That positive review went somewhere else, more obscure. Um, but in any case, so I want to do that because I just want to like show the world and also speak for those of us who do accept evolution and live in the 21st century. Uh, you know, yeah. And yeah. also, I wanted to um, make the case that it was compatible with like conservative thought um, and just kind of like, you know, the organic understanding of social structures. They're not arbitrary. They're not all socially constructed. Now, the blowback was it was mostly positive. But then some people on the radical left who are social constructionists were they accused me of being um, like all sorts of, you know, the usual transphobe, which like, OK, I didn't really. I, I don't know. Like people draw connections to transphobia to everything, so I actually didn't. Yeah, know that. Every, everything's transphobic. Like, yeah, yeah. So that was. That, but um, one thing I I will tell uh, uh, your your um you know listeners or viewers is uh what really pisses me off is like and then people started accusing me be a Dinesh D'Souza of population genetics and I was like this is the thing with liberals you guys are against racism but whenever you're pissed that at is, me it, yeah that's the racist only thing I have in common with Dinesh D'Souza is this. Like, I have yeah. nothing else in common. Well, I mean, I guess we're both conservative, but um, we're very different. And so I was just like, okay. So like, you, wrote, you wrote an article praising evolution and making a strong case for evolution in support of evolution, saying that conservatives should actually, yeah. you know, embrace this because this is the truth yeah. and it's real and this is evolution. 
um, which is the exact opposite of anything Dinesh D'Souza would probably say. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so I was like, I was like, kind of pissed because I was like, you know, this is what always happens, where it's like, oh, all these like SJWs that are against racism, but like they always they like, and like a lot of conservative non-whites will tell you, like they go there, yeah, because yeah, yeah. you're you're white adjacent now, you know, like white adjacent. Do anything. Oh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, it was like. That was kind of that was the only thing that like really pissed me off. The rest of the denunciation, I got to see like who I feel like were my friends within the population genetics community. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, someone who, you know, I'm friends with still, but like I got to get a sense of them. So like everyone who was a mutual follower with this person, person was like, you need to unfollow Razib because he's evil. I mean, this is like TLDR. But um, one of my friends who I have actually done a lot of solids for, including getting jobs for. Mm-hmm. Um, saw it, got stressed out, and preemptively denounced me without reading the article, and then yeah. sent, sent me a text to apologize. They were just scared. Uh-huh. But I told my friend, I was like, okay, like, I see what the... So is this, like, peer pressure? They just decided yeah, they to were, shit they, on you because of peer pressure? Yeah, it was like, they, yeah. they, were, they were doing Maoist struggle session stuff. Oh, and so Jesus. I told my friend, I was like, okay, like, I know what the content of your character is. <laughs> like, some <laughs> random, random person you don't know denounces someone who, like, has actually been a real-life friend, and then you just do the denunciation before you even read because you got scared. And then he, like, apologized. Anyway, he was scared. It's fine. I understand. But there are other people who actually did defend me. And I was like, whoa, like, these people, like, there are people with courage out there because they had to, like, go against, like, all these accusations. And they were just like, we don't, like, agree with everything Razib says, which, like, of course, why would you? But, you know, you have to say that. But, you know, we, you know, think that this is ridiculous. There are other people who privately sent me messages. They're like, yeah, I read it and I didn't see anything offensive. And then... I guess I could see their interpretation, but you have to interpret, you know, anyway, so yeah. it was, it was just interesting. But I mean, when I say like, I'm a conservative, you know, I, I have like a very simple heuristic on this. It's like, who is against me and who is for me? Like I am with who is for me yeah, and I am against who is against me. So like, I have a lot of views that are, you would call socially liberal, but mm. ultimately that doesn't really matter. Does it? Because you know, like, are you going to be in the camps? Or are you going to send people to the camps? Like, if it gets to that stage, you have to, like, think about, like, who has your back. Because this is the world we live in. You know, mm-hmm. like, you can be, like, an isolated, like, just rationalizing machine, which I, I'm i probably I, a little too much of that. But I, I think it's a little bit more than just, you know, who's with me and who's against me. Because, you know, you, you can have very uh, – I, I know this from the stuff that I do. So, you know, we're, you know, again – being part of the of the left and the liberal circles, you know that you know there's a lot of times I'm called a sellout and everything too. Um, uh, Armin even more so. I, it was, since I started hanging out with Armin, he gets all of that, and you know I've been I'm sort of back. It, it's it, but it still happens. Um, but for me, it's not as simple as you know who's with me and who's against me, who has my back, because often the people who do have my back are some of those opportunists, right? Um, will come that they'll sort of use what I have to say to further whatever they want mm. to do, a lot of mm-hmm. the bigotry and everything. So mm-hmm. it's not as simple, but I guess, um, but, uh, but I would say that you have to, I, I would probably look at it and I, I've seen it on both sides. I've seen it with liberals and conservatives, both there, there mm-hmm. are a few mm-hmm. that will come out and say um, openly yeah. without fear um, what may be unpopular for yeah. their own fellow sure. people. Oh, yeah. and, and those are the people I respect the most because, because you know, here's the thing, like, you know, you, you were mentioning earlier, there's a lot of conservatives who embrace evolution, they're against creationism, but they don't really talk about it out loud, like, you know, in the think tanks because of the, you know, evangelicals and everything like that. 
um, to me, that's very similar to you know the the liberals who stay quiet it is, when they're it actually is. feeling something. So I think it happens on both sides. Yeah, it does. Right? It, it, it there's there's definitely both sides to it. One thing I would say is like I actually don't I distinguish the liberals and the left. So mm-hmm. you know my argument to my liberal friends is always like you should just join us on the right and we can fight after we defeat the left. Because, yeah. you know, I, I, you know, if the left is gone, I might actually be, a, you know, on the left liberal side. Yeah. But you, know? I, you know, there's a left that's online on Twitter and online yes. on Twitter. The left, right, everything is just yes. apeshit, yeah. stupid. I, I, I totally but then think there's, that, right? Yeah. But, but I've seen things change in academia and I've seen the academic language start percolating to, right. you know, Democratic yeah. candidates. So um, I, I do think that what happens online and in the seminars has a big effect on the left, partly because academia is influential on the left in the way it isn't on the right. Yeah. So if right. I say I'm socially liberal, which I probably would say the vast majority of, I mean, I would just say that, but I'm not really sure if I am anymore because I don't know what that even means because it just changes so fast. And it's like, you know, I like to quote the, you know, saying that the Uma shall not agree upon error. I see a lot <laughs> of social justice warriors. They just agree that this is the progressive view on this and this is the progressive view on that. But, like, they actually, are like, are in conflict, but they've just agreed yeah. that, you know. So, like, for example, like, you can't be trans. In the United States, you can't be transracial. Right. But why? Uh, well, I mean, that's, that's obviously, like, the races. So, so, on one hand, you know, this is the problem with, okay, so the trans thing is a little tough, okay? Yeah. Uh, actually, it's, it's quite tough. So, there's, for me, it's a matter of, you know, when they say what is socially liberal, like you said, there has to be some sort of rooting in reality. Like, for instance, with same-sex marriage, right? Same-sex marriage has never felt like an issue for me because, first of all, just from a liberty point of view, people should be able to do whatever the hell they want to do. And, you know, homosexuality is something that you sure. see in hundreds of species sure. of other animals. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, like, it's, it's fine. But when you're talking about trans, uh, at, at, on one hand, you know, there's this idea that gender is not a real thing and it's a construct. On the other hand... Uh, when you are transitioning from uh, um, a male gender to a female gender, like like Caitlyn Jenner, what do you do? You put on makeup, you grow your hair, yeah, yeah. you start wearing dresses. You're doing the so so. It, it's gender essentialist, yeah, yeah in a way. Yeah, a lot it, of it, like, my, it is. Yeah. Like you wouldn't need we, cis and trans if yeah. there was no biological sex. Yeah, like, there's no such thing as biological sex. If there's no such thing as biological sex, why are you using yeah. terms like cis and trans? The yeah, word cis and trans actually acknowledged. The, the very yeah. idea that biological sex is real. There, there's, some, there's something in this discussion where it's like, okay, like, it's kind of like, can God create a rock that he can't lift up? There's some, like, logical yeah. going on where it's like, there's like a, there's a circularity and like, okay, like, what starts where and how did this happen? With the gays thing, it was relatively straightforward for me because I'm just like, I like women. There are other guys that like guys and girls that like girls. Okay, it's just kind of like a modification on something I already understand. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just like, okay, like, you just change the parameter. So it's like, let's think, like, formally, you have a model, and you just change the parameter from, like, positive to negative or something in, mm-hmm. you know, some of, in some, some of the variables. Um, but with, the, with some of these other new radical things, like of social constructionism, um, or, like, you know, it, what about, like, disability rights? I mean, we all want people with disabilities to have dignity. Yeah. But, like, what does that mean? So, you know, we talked earlier about trisomy. Um, mm-hmm. There are disability rights activists that are extremely angry about the termination in utero. Yeah, because that is discriminatory. It is. 
it is. It is. You know, it's like there are all these sorts of groups, and um, I do think. Um, but and, and that's not even a liberal conservative thing. This is, I mean, conservatives are completely against it for for other reasons for different too. Different reasons. I mean, yeah, a lot of conservative pro life. Oh, and sort of similar reasons in a way, just because, I mean, this is what God gave you. God gave you this kid who's got Down syndrome. Why are you getting rid of him? Uh, so there's a pro-life. And, and for me, it's all, it's all about that, you know, it's about facts. It's about evidence. And it is hard to make these decisions. Like, I, I've always said that I find the abortion issue, even though I'm pretty solidly pro-choice, I get the other side I get the other side. Like, I understand that if you're looking at it from a libertarian perspective, if you're looking at a fetus as a human being, then yes, then that would, you would see that as murder. And it's not about the woman's choice because it's a woman. And then there's this other individual inside and there, they have, so I get all of that. That's much easier for me to understand, even if I don't agree with it completely, uh, than say something like an opposition to same sex marriage, which I just think is completely nonsensical. Right. But so again, I I feel like there just has to be, there has to be some sort of rooting in in uh, something that in in some sort of scientific reality. There has to be, and and I it's I I'm one hundred percent. I I think that people should be identified, able to identify as whatever gender they want. All this stuff doesn't bother me. The pronouns thing, I don't I don't care about pronouns. It's like a really really big deal. Someone wants me to call them they, I'll call them they. You know, I, I, it, it, this, this happened actually with the word you and thou. You know how thou was uh, for, for individuals and you was for a collective group, right? You and ye. And eventually you became for the collective, like, the, like they, right? And uh, a, a lot of, uh, uh, sort of religious folk, religious authorities got very upset at that because they thought this was against God's language. And uh, eventually nobody cared. Happen so that kind of thing doesn't bother me. The pronouns issue, uh, or people wanting to identify with well, seventy-two genders. Who cares? the The only problem is that when there's this denial of biological reality, and when you're having any kind of conversation about biological sex, for instance, and all of the implications associated with it, um, in, even in a completely different context, and and they they jump on you. That's something you have to fight back against. I feel. Yeah, I mean. Um, it's weird though because it, there is a complication to it. It is complicated. Hmm. Like you can't complicate it. So, like one of the you know some biologists were saying, well, like gender and sex is more complicated than you're saying. And I'm just like, yeah, it is more complicated. But like, I mean, I mean, I was educated in the life sciences, and why wasn't it so complicated ten years ago? It's you know like how you how you emphasize certain things. I mean, there's orthogonal. There's like somewhat different um, issues related to like human social complexity and and cooperation. Where again, you can complicate it too. But I mean, there's like this course like baseline understanding that we're a social organism. Like how that happens, um, how selfishness operates with unselfishness. There's a lot of details to be worked in, and I feel like there's a bit of sophistry in some of the pushback about like, oh well, actually. Um, it's not so straightforward that there are predominantly two sexes or two mm. genders or whatever. And I'm like, okay, like, I think it is pretty straightforward, but this is, I mean, if this is something you had to discover in the last five years, um, I'm not really sure that you're being motivated by just the evidence. That's, yeah. that's my opinion, you know? And so, um, you know, that, that, that's something that I've encountered. I've seen in academia and I'm, 
really turned off by the way academics have been behaving recently. That is, I think, the most worrisome thing about this is the infiltration into academia because, you know, the, a lot of these issues, they've, uh, you know, when I read, I was looking at Douglas Murray's book and I was reading, you know, parts of it. I, I admittedly I haven't read the whole thing. But uh, there is a, I, to me, a lot of these culture wars seem like the stuff that's happened forever between generations. It's like a generation gap. Or, you know, my, my dad didn't like it when I grew my hair or, you know, they didn't, they were like, oh, what's wrong with uh, black people and white people getting married? Yeah, it's just, it's just your general generational things with the older people, like, oh, look at the kids of today, what they're doing. And the kids are like, no, fuck you. You know, we're going to be, this is the right way to be. And you guys are all outdated and okay, boomer. And I, I, so I feel that there's that. But the infiltration, when it infiltrates into academia and then these, and, and they can actually tell professors what to do and they, they could sort of terrorize them, really, like, yeah, scare them into silence. Where yeah, I mean, people I can, are leaving. I, you know, I they're can, leaving academia. Yeah, they are, and I can tell you a lot of stories of like the compromises people make, and you know, um, motivated minorities can affect a lot of change because a lot of people oh. are busy. They're doing research. They're writing grants. They don't have time to get into food fights constantly, right. and so people are looking the other way not engaging on certain issues, not putting up certain fights. I feel like academia has gotten, like 10 years ago, my friend um, uh, Heather McDonald emailed me and was just like, you know, she's wondering about academia. And I said, well, you know, scientists are liberal, but science is not liberal. Yeah. Um, science doesn't have an ideology. I wouldn't, actually, I wouldn't tell her that now because um, 10 years ago, um, academics were saying academics like scientists that i know were like well you know there's the reason there's no conservatives in science is because either conservatives are stupid or they're just not interested and i'm like i kind of disagreed but you know that that's a, okay that's not totally ir irrational there's self, self self selection going on um you know uh so okay that's fine today in 2020 um there are academics now who are saying like it is our choice and our right to discriminate politically because we don't feel comfortable with people with certain views like it's like the subtext went to the text like they just uh, like they're not even pretending anymore you know um so it's like that's how far it's gone and um i know people who are like supporters of pete Buttigieg in academia who would never say it on twitter because they don't want to be attacked as reactionaries yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. that's just that is crazy and privately a lot of people are very different than what what they project on social media or even to like, you know, their colleagues that are just acquaintances and not friends. Um, this it's a, it's supporters of Pete Buttigieg. So that is taboo, right? Is what yes. Saying? Yes. Because he's a neoliberal shill reaction. I don't know. I mean, he's, I, I, and it's, it's amazing because he's one of the most progressive candidates yeah, yeah, running yeah. history yeah. in history. Like in it, but, but he is, and, and he's gay and he's married and all that, but yeah, he's a That's Christian kind of the and problem. he's a, that's kind and of the, the races, they call him racist, yeah. He's a very bourgeois, he's a very bourgeois gay guy. I saw right? Masha Gessen's article on him where she said, and this was astounding, like, uh, he's not, you know, he's a he's a straight politician in a gay man's body. Yeah. But I was thinking that's what they used to say about Obama, that he's not black enough. And now sure. Pete Buttigieg is not gay enough. I mean, there's, you, to, you, you know. know it, this is interesting because the same people that are objecting to stereotypes get annoyed when people break out of their stereotypes. Isn't that the they irony? Do. That's, that's what I thing. thought when I read that. I'm like, dude, he has sex with men. What more do you <laughs> want? want? He kisses his husband on stage. Yeah. Like, what? How gay do you want him to be? And yeah, he's. Mean, this is something I, I was thinking. Like, you know, and there's a lot of people. You know, on, on the right, people kind of downplay all of this identity stuff. And I, but I, I think that at times it's massive. It's huge for a uh, 
like Iowa and New Hampshire for the guy to have the delegate lead to be a gay married man in the Democratic Party, in a major party in the U.S., that is something to celebrate. That's not just identity politics. I mean, these are like the word, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say it because I know YouTube will ban us, but, you know, the F-A-G-G-O-T word. Like this actually meant, and, and this is, again, I know this is a pathologist, is that there is a certain kind of leukemia where you have these F-A-G-G-O-T cells because those are, what the word means is cords of wood. So they have these things called hour rods, like A-U-E-R rods, that are in there, and they're just bundles, bundles of wood. And what they used to do through history is they used to throw these bundles of wood in the fire to make the fire grow. And they used yeah. to throw in gay people into the fire and burn them alive along <laughs> with those bundles of wood. Okay, that is the where the word came from. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And that is that is the kind of history that that these people have had. And now he he's the uh, one of the you know major. Yep. Uh, he's, the, he's the delegate lead, right, for yeah. the first two states. This is something that liberals yeah. should be well, celebrating I mean, instead of saying he's not gay enough. I mean, that's insane. Well, so, it I mean, drives me the, insane. That, that one of the things with Trump is like you notice like they're not going to like roll back like gay marriage or anything. I mean, he said he would vote for a gay. A gay candidate. Yeah, a, a, a no Republican would. Yeah. I don't think any Republican, even Mike Pence, if he got in there, he's not going to touch it because it's just not. It's, it, our culture has he'd totally lose the changed. It's totally changed. Um, but I mean, I think it's changed partly because P Buttigieg, again, he is conforming to a very understandable, relatable standard. He yeah, doesn't want to radically trans. He doesn't want to change my family. Yeah. He has his own family, right? Right. So I mean, that that's what's going on there. But I think that offends certain people because certain people want. I mean, you know, there's this stupid Vice article about how, like, this woman wants to abolish the family, blah, blah, blah. It's like, th this has been stuff. Almost every around. Vice article these days that I see is just, I, I don't know what happened to Vice. I, I, Vice used to I be think, fucking amazing. I think Vice should be switched from Vice to Virtue Signal, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like Vice and Virtue. It's gone. So, hey, listen, but before you go, and I know we're, we're kind of over, but I, I could talk to you for a very, very long time. I'm not going to do that, though. Um, I want to ask you just about two more things. Uh, one is um, uh, just in terms of, uh, well, in the Ancestor's Tale, right, the updated edition by Richard Dawkins, uh, he talked about how um, virtually everybody in Europe probably has some level of descendancy from Muhammad because of the Moorish invasion of southern Europe. Um, how Genealogically. Genealogically, yeah. Genealogically. That's different than genetic. So, okay, so, so what does that mean? So um, basically, if you go back 200 years, you have an X number of ancestors, assuming that you're outbred, that you don't have like cousin marriage and stuff like that, which, you know, with you might be a little different. No, <laughs> uh, of course. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Pakistan. Guys, you know. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's, a, that, that's why I look like this. Yeah. That's but, uh, where the... <laughs> but uh, so basically, there's a 50% chance that you have any segment of DNA from any given individual that far back. And the further far back you go, you have all these ancestors, but the vast majority of them are not contributing DNA down to you. And so, yes, it is true that you can draw a line of genealogy almost certainly from any European back to Muhammad through that princess um, from one of the Moorish families who married into, I think the, it was like an Arganese um, royalty. Yeah, and it was, well, there was Isabella who, um, and, and what was, I can't forget her original Muslim name, but she was a, a direct descendant of yeah. Muhammad. Yeah. And uh, she yeah. got married to, I think, King George. I can't remember the yeah, exact yeah, same yeah, thing. No, Sancho. But there's a family King. tree, and Queen yeah. Elizabeth actually is yes. a legit descendant of Muhammad. Yes. She actually yes. is. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, like, you can draw these genealogies, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's any g distinctive genetic material. Like, there is in some people, 
but um so so that's the issue like everyone's genealogically related but that doesn't mean we share segments of dna the segments of dna you have depend like how many times this particular individual shows up in your genealogy right but in the in the old school like ways before the genetic thing mm-hmm. was even an issue nobody really cared about genetic material they yeah. cared about family yeah. trees but i mean so so they so cared that, about that, genealogy that is yeah, so correct that is certainly so, true. Yeah, so, so this is, there's this thing for a lot of – there's this, uh, this subgroup of Muslims, and especially Shia Muslims, called Sayyids. And they call themselves Sayyids. You get that title because you are apparently a de- descendant of Muhammad. Yeah. But Muhammad actually got his business into you know, so many different areas that yeah. uh, almost – like many, many of us are actual descendants of Muhammad. Yes. And Richard Dawkins yeah. himself said that he's like, I'm most likely yeah. a descendant of Muhammad, which is uh, just a really funny – thing like it's it'd be make a great tweet yeah well, so <laughs> he one, actually acknowledges one, it. one thing i would say about the sayyids is um the royal families that in the arab world that claim Sayyid ancestry they tend to be haplogroup j2 which is a uh, uh, they tend to be a sub haplogroup that's the cousin haplogroup or haplotype to the cohen's um cohen j1 no j1 is the most is mostly arabs i think it's, it's j2 arabs, okay. i think it's j2 though it's j2 yeah, yeah. for yeah. muhammad um, so South Asians, Syeds, I've looked at, they tend not to be J2. They, t- I, they tend to be like R1A. So my mm-hmm. hypothesis, my explanation is most South Asian Syeds are actually descended from upper caste Hindus who yeah, they are. maintain their status. They just claim that they were Syeds. They were descended from Muhammad, even though they were descended from some Brahmin or Khatri or something. Uh, Razib, wait till the science denialism starts here. Oh, no, I already get no, emails. I, it, I've caused controversies apparently in message boards of Syeds. Yeah, of Pakistani Syeds, because like someone was like, "This is what my data says," and I'm like, "Oh yeah, you guys are Khatris." I gotta get on those message boards because I I am actually a Syed as well. I have that title. Okay. I, I've got oh. the name from birth, and we have a family. Apparently, a family they call it a Shajra. It's a family tree, yeah. genealogy tree that goes all the way back to Muhammad. I mean, I've seen it. You know, you, it's know, a, you know what an Arab calls a Arab calls a, a South Asian Syed? Uh, what? A Kufar. No. <laughs> 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 well, of course they do, don't they? I'm just paraphrasing but, Malcolm X. Like, you know, what, what does a white guy call a black guy with a PhD? You know? <laughs> I, you know yeah. So I got so I got to ask you something now. Now that we've sort of you segued into it better than I did. So so my um, haplogroup, my paternal haplogroup is JP. Uh, hold on, is it? I got to double check it now. JP four five eight or something like that. No, JP fifty eight. JP58, which is apparently a really rare haplogroup. Do you know anything? I don't think you, I don't know if you know about anything about it offhand. Looking up really quickly. Um, uh, oh, it looks so like the, it's a Semitic. So it's a Semitic haplogroup, actually. And yeah, so, I know. So there's a, a, a lot of people from Qatar, a lot of people from Yemen, a lot of Jews, um, including some Ashkenazi, some of the Kohenim, well, a lot of the, uh, not, a lot of the non Kohenim. Yeah. Oh no, yeah. the Kohenim, but forty six percent of the Kohenim, the Kohenim. Co- okay. Cohen's. So, yeah. So, I guess like maybe you actually do have a paternal lineage that goes to West Asia, like mm-hmm. into the Arab world. I mean, just because uh, mostly South Asian Jays are J twos. Yeah. And those are indigenous, and they're related to like an Iranian expansion, like ancient Iranian expansion, and so um, I guess like you might be the real deal. Oh my God, I might be a real fucking Sayyid. Sorry, I, I'm. Arma's gonna I'm kill just, me uh, Yeah, like yeah. Well, I'll do a follow up with you. Yeah, I think I, I think yeah, that, that's very that's very rare. Um, that's a very rare haplogroup in South Asians in particular. Um, yeah, it is. So 
might, you might. And I've looked at Pakistanis where it looks like some of them have a little bit of a little bit of West Asian, like, you know, Arab type admixture. Um, so, I mean, it's there. It's just at low level. It's, you know, one of those things where it's like a lot of South Asian Muslims, they're like, oh, well, my great, 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 great grandfather was a Persian. And I'm like, okay, but what about every single other one of your ancestors? Well, I don't know. <laughs> you know, that's what's going, that's what's going on. I'm like, let's count too, bro. It is, it's <laughs> so like, weird. That you do. We can't imagine, uh, we really, people have a really hard time imagining the sort of exponential nature of, of how this oh, happens and how these genealogies come to be. But yeah, I, I just, I, we, we can talk about this more offline yeah, and I'll, sure, I'll like, write sure. to you about it. But I'm very interested because the reason I'm telling you is because this caused a lot of controversy uh, in my extended family who really believe, you know, we're Sayyids, we're descended from Muhammad and this and that. And uh, initially this was, I mean, JP4, uh, JP58, now it's called JP58. Initially it was called J1C3 or something. And there was... Mm -hmm. Uh, it was, this is about five, six years ago, and it wasn't as well delineated. Um, and at that time, there was a saying that, you know, okay, you've got you know, from what's now Eastern Turkey, you know, migrated down to Israel, and you've got Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry, and this and that. So when, when that happened, that caused a lot of controversy in my extended family. And it was so much fun to troll them with that side of it, even though the ancestry oh, also came from other places. You are right. You are, you are, you are legit. Hashemites oh. or J Hashemites or JP five eight. Hashemites are JP five eight. The Hashemite royal family, yeah. Now, can, can you say that so I can take a clip of this and put it on Twitter as as a way for people to watch this? Yeah, okay. Like you're, uh, you're no, no. legit. You're Karish in the house. You are. I think you're. I think you are. Yeah, because like the Hashemite royal, like they do with the Hashemites and like the Moroccan royal family. Um, they are J one P five eight mutation. That is assumed to be the legit descent of Muhammad through the Karish. Um, so you are like, um, like I'm a descendant of Muhammad. Yeah, do I have to kiss your feet or something? I don't no, know. No, no, you don't have to do anything. It doesn't matter. It's okay. I'm just gonna. I have to make sure I just marry my cousins from now on. Yeah, and yeah. Keep it in the family. That's all. Oh, that's pretty. That's pretty <laughs> awesome, though. You're descendant of. Of of Muhammad or someone that claimed to be Muhammad. Wow, that's interesting. Okay, I just saw it. It was JP fifty eight, and it's like this is a very rare thing among South Asians and on twenty three and Me. And I was thinking, I was like, okay, I got to find out more about this. But there wasn't that much known about it. A lot of the stuff has been uncovered recently. So do you get, I you actually should, did? Do you, get, do you get a special insurance rate for your car now and all these things? Well, now I am, aren't I? I, I think <laughs> I need to move back to Saudi Arabia. That's what I fucking need to do. <laughs> all right, bro. I've been right. here for too long anyway. Yeah. Hey, right. so. Um, hey, listen, man, thanks for talking to me. We covered so much stuff. It's great. And I do want to have you back on when Armin sure. is here. And Ayatollah, I, I, Ayatollah, I mean, I hope he's doing well physically. Like, Iranians are not doing well right now. Oh, physically? You <laughs> I mean, yeah. Ayatollah's. The Ayatollah. He's, uh, Armin is afflicted with the coronavirus. That's what he's got. He's got, the, he's got the coronavirus right now. Yeah. That's what's happening. Yeah, they're, they're, you're right. They're not doing very well. That, I mean, that was comical, wasn't it? The deputy health minister, he's out there. He's like, oh, we don't have any coronavirus problems. Yeah. And he's and he's like wiping his nose and sneezing and shit. And the next day he's like, I got coronavirus. It's like so when they denied that, them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like when they denied there, were no, there was no homosexuality in Iran. Yeah. Know, when used to say that. Yeah. Oh, man, that place is funny. It's uh, I, that, the that's the only That's the way someone like Armin could come to be. Only yeah, a yeah. place as crazy as Iran could produce, <laughs> you know, those Persians. I, at least he doesn't wear the gold chains, you know. On yeah, <laughs> I love doing episodes without Armin. This is great. I'm going to make a total habit of this. Everybody who's listening.
Yeah, if, if you like this, if you enjoyed this episode, let me know. Uh, we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash SJME. You can go there. You can become a patron for as little as a, a patron for as little as a dollar a month. I'm a uh, patron. Just set your limits. And oh, Razib is a patron. Razib, thank you very much. I'm a patron. Uh, and, um, you know, if you can't, if you can't financially contribute, you know, share it on your social media feeds. Tell people about it. Go on the podcast app, the Apple podcast, and leave us a, a review. Whatever you can do to get the word out. And, uh, Razib, man, thank you very much for doing All this. Right. And uh, this great. is great. It was great talking. I'll talk to you some other time. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have you back on when Armin's on, too. He's going to be All right. All right. Take it easy, bro. All right. The Secular Jihadists have been made possible thanks to the Illuminati and the covert support of Israel and the CIA. That's what we have been told, but we haven't received our checks yet. If you like what we do, please support us. Share the podcast with your friends. Write and tweet us with topic and guest suggestions. Or head over to secularjihadists.com and give a dollar or more for exclusive access to live video. Have your questions read and answered on the air and more. Till next time, may the flying spaghetti monster be with you. Thank <laughs> you.